0: Who Gets to Decide? A liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide? Well, we're still in Black History Month, and I wanted to do another episode, I hope you don't mind, on Thomas Sowell. I just think Thomas Sowell is just an awesome intellect, philosopher, smart, all around smart guy. And, uh, I've got some clips that I want to play. He just, he has a way of just him and Walter Williams, both had a, had a, have a way of crystallizing things down into simple, uh, easy to understand, relatable ways of thinking about things. And, uh, I borrowed from this history program that this guy named Jason Riley put together. It was very, very good. It goes all the way back and talks about his boyhood and growing up in school and how he had this mentor and mixed in there is some of his comments on his work and uh, some stories around him working for the government as an intern. And uh, you know, to, what you'll like about Thomas Sowell is things are either right or wrong. Now, he'll be the first to tell you that there is really no right or wrong, but there's trade-offs. But for him, the trade-offs are obvious, and um, these trade-offs aren't obvious to a lot of people. They just only see that they're trying to do good, and um, what he likes to do is point out the other side of the equation. So with that, let's pick up near the beginning of Thomas Sowell's young life, and let's hear what he has to say about how he grew up
1: in Harlem, there was a kid named Eddie that members of the family had run into before I ever arrived from North Carolina. He came from a highly educated family and they immediately saw the implications if they could get him to mentor me.
2: Eddie brought Tom here to the Harlem Public Library taught him how to find books that interested him, taught him how to check them out.
1: And I saw all these books, and I had no idea why we were there when I didn't have any money to buy one book. And so what am I gonna do with all these, you know, hundreds of books up on the shelf?
2: Crossing the threshold to this new world was the first step on a path young Tommy might not otherwise have taken.
1: And he very patiently walked me through the whole thing. And again, I was very reluctant to take out a library card because I didn't know what what all this is about. But he talked me into it. Then I borrowed a couple of books. And really, had I not encountered him, the, the entire rest of the story could not have been the way it was. I mean, at some point, I would have learned what a public library was. But by that point, it would be too late.
0: So just to kind of give you a time frame of when this is, this is when Thomas Soul was about eight years old, and he, his uh, great aunt, he went to live with his great aunt and her two daughters because his father had died before he was even born, and his mother died during childbirth, uh, giving birth to one of his siblings. So uh, Thomas Soule really didn't even know either one of his parents, and so he attributes a lot of his growing up to his great aunt uh, and, and of course he went to go live with them in Harlem and they had already known this kid, Eddie. And so it was, it was, it was part of their plan all, all, all along is to get, uh, Thomas Soul together with this, this young man, Eddie, and let Eddie kind of mentor him. And I just think it's a, a great story that this young man took an interest in someone like Thomas Soul because I mean, otherwise we might not have had Thomas Soul, and that's a pretty rotten thought when you think about it but also think about all the kids that are getting subpar education that that we would have had <clears throat> in our society we would have had contributions from them and we just don't because you know we never knew who they were because they weren't fostered along and mentored along
1: well because I was a Marxist at the time and oh, they, were, they, were, they were appalled, and I said, you know, they, they have very high intellectual standards, and I'm, I'm not going to find uh, ideological soulmates. I was still a Marxist. Uh, I took a summer job in the government at, uh, inter, intern in economics, and it was seeing the government from the inside that, uh, that turned me around. The, the vision of the left, and I think many conservatives underestimate this, is really a more attractive vision uh, in itself. The only reason for not believing in it is that it doesn't work, but you don't. But you don't see that at the outset. If all, all you're looking at is just a theory, if the world were the way the left conceives it to be, it would be a better world than the way the right conceives it to be. It just happens that the, the world is not that
0: way. So we're picking up his story uh, when he was in uh, in college at the University of Chicago, and he actually studied under Milton Friedman. And what he's saying is, you know, he was. He was, uh, I guess, a little bit guarded or concerned that uh, he just wasn't going to fit in with these guys that were very high intellect. And of course, he didn't—he didn't realize that he ha- he was actually very high intellect. Um, but he also worried that he was a Marxist, and he knew Milton Friedman was not. And um, it's just interesting that how he, how he talks about how he shifted. Uh, not at University of Chicago, which, were, which is where it, you would logically think he would shift from being a Marxist to being more of a free market or free enterprise person, since Milton Friedman clearly was. But, um, but he talks about how, no, that shift did not come until he actually went to go work for the government. And in his intern, uh, uh, summer internship, he went to work for the Labor Department. And that's where things started to change for him. My
1: first uh, professional job, I was a summer intern at the U.S. Department of Labor. One of my biggest concerns was about minimum wages. At first, I thought, well, this is good because all these people are poor and they'll get a little higher income, and so that'll that'll be helpful. And then uh, as I studied economics, I began to see, well, there's a downside. They may lose their jobs completely, so that's that. that. When I was at the Labor Department, I tried to uh, talk about that to them, and eventually I came up with some test of it. And when I came up with how we might test this, I was waiting to hear congratulations, you see, that I had this. And I could see these people were stunned. They said, oh, this this idiot has stumbled on something that would ruin us all.
0: I think that story is so funny that uh, that they were immediately threatened by uh, the fact that he had figured out a way to test um, whether or not the minimum wage was a, a, a good thing or a bad thing. And they just thought, well, that's we can't have that. and so, And just seeing that was enough to you know, basically convince him that, that, you know, maybe the the government's not quite the right way to provide solutions uh, for society. You were a Marxist at one
2: time in your life. Most people will find this hard to believe, but it is true.
1: But it's not that unusual. Uh, Most of the, the leading conservative thinkers of our time time uh, did not start off as conservative. You had a couple like uh, Bill Buckley and uh, George Will. But I mean, Milton Friedman was a liberal and a Keynesian. Ronald Reagan was so far left, at one point the FBI was following him.
2: Do you remember sort of what you were thinking, what appealed to you at that time about Marxism?
1: Yes, I mean, there was no alternative being discussed. I mean, I was still a Marxist after taking Milton Friedman's course. Uh, but I, I, went into, I but, but was, one, one summer in the government was enough to let me say, no, this government is really not the answer. I mean, that is... <laughs> Milton Friedman didn't cure you, but the federal government the, did. Federal government did. So Never no, say the federal government doesn't do anything.
0: Yeah, so it's it's not uncommon for people to be attracted to Marxism because it's a very compelling story uh, that everybody you know is happy and does well and it's more equal and these types of, uh, lofty, um, um, platitudes. The other thing is that he said there at the end is there's just no alternative taught. I mean, we're taught that the government with its wise, you know, specialist and people that are, that are very intelligent in these areas are, are they know best and we need to defer to them. And, and that's kind of the, the theme and it's, it's, it's one that's, it's compelling. I mean, it's easy to believe in, but if you look at the results and you really rigorous, rigorously can, uh, compare them to the results of the market. I mean, it just doesn't even compare, but a lot of times, you know, the market gets blamed for, for bad outcomes where government has, uh, inserted itself and it just doesn't always get told correctly. And, uh, and and then you combine that with this compelling vision of uh, marxism and it's no wonder that so many young people start off thinking that way i love the fact that uh, milton friedman couldn't convert him but uh the federal government ended up converting him to a different way of thinking i just think that's hilarious
1: you yeah, chicago if it was true it was true because you could prove it was true It was true because you had the evidence, you had the logic, and so forth. They explored the specific ways in which the market does and doesn't work. The idea, you know, that people are rational on the whole. And that if you allow those people to operate in the marketplace, you will generally get better results.
0: Thomas Sowell spent much of his career focused on why education was so bad. And this is probably in part because he felt like he had a pretty good education. Now he had a great aunt that really cared and her two daughters, and he had a pretty good grade school. But when it came to junior high, he they took him out of the junior high and found a different school for him to go to. And as a result of that and the fact that he had this mentorship with this kid, Eddie, he more or less had a great education. The problem today is these these inner city kids are getting a horrible education. It's just horrible, and we can't seem to get the political will to change it. You know, to put to let these parents that do care get their kids in a school that um, that where they can get an education and get some sort of start on life. Um, and anyway, Thomas Sowell was a was a big advocate for voucher systems and he didn't care what you called it as long as you gave the choice, the power of the choosing to the, the child and the parents of the child. There are few things more dishonorable than misleading the young.
1: The abysmal quality of education available in the ghettos today is one that I really don't think uh, the worst possible private school could match. 40 years ago, I received a far better education in Harlem than the people who are living in Harlem today have available to them.
0: Yeah. And so in general with government programs, once they're there, it's just very difficult to change their direction or to dislodge them from the public um, discourse. And, you know, this this is one of the reasons why you don't give government power. Because once you give it to them, they don't ever relinquish it. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, incentive structures get created, and there's a whole edifice that's built around something like education to keep it embedded in the public sphere. And uh, it becomes about money, and budgets, and teachers' unions, and things like that. It, do, it doesn't have anything to do, none of that stuff has anything to do with, with teaching young minds. But... That's what it becomes about. And that's why you don't give stuff to government because it just, you, once it's there, you can't change it. Look at Obamacare. We passed the Affordable Health Care Act. Republicans ran for like three years in a row, uh, you know, railing against it. They got in there and they didn't change a damn thing. And that's just the way it is. That's the way government operates.
1: Back in 1978, when there was a push for a voucher scheme, the New Republic objected, in their words, the least educated, the least ambitious, and the least aware would be left in the public schools.
0: That's right. That's, that's exactly what you see. And uh, um, there have been people that have looked at culture and education. And there's a huge correlation between culture and how much emphasis uh, particular cultures put on education and and then how well— Uh, children and young adults do as a result of that. That's why you see so many Asians doing well. Well, they have a culture of putting a lot of emphasis on education. And, um, you know, and they're going to find a way. They're going to find a way to get their children educated. Same thing with Indians, you know, uh, just Asians in general. And then when you get into some of the minority communities. There's less cultural focus on that, probably because they don't have two parents in the home. And there's probably a whole bunch of reasons, but, but he really kind of gets down to the, to the details there. Who's going to make them do their homework? Who's going to make them get up and go to school? I mean, this is just basic blocking and tackling. And if you're the parent and you don't really care whether your kid goes to school or not, or does their homework, kid's probably not going to get a very good education.
3: with respect to education. Tom would say, it doesn't make any difference how much money you put into education, but if they're not some basic factors that you uh, must take into account. That is, in order for a kid to get a good education, somebody must make him go to bed on time. Somebody must make him do his homework. Somebody must make him mind the teacher. Somebody has to get him up in the morning. And if those things are not done, I don't care how much money you put into education, you're not going to get very good results and that is precisely what we see. What I love about
0: this clip is really the argument that he makes can be made about anything that government does. You know, Tom Woods likes to talk about, uh, sometimes it's hard for people to see things that the government could do. It's hard for them to see how the market could do it. But if you look at something like, uh, the, the example he used was like shoes. Imagine we had a department of shoes And your shoes had to come from the government. Now, just on the surface, you think, well, that's absurd, you know, because people have all kinds of different kinds of wants and desires around shoes, you know, basketball shoes, track shoes, dress shoes, women's shoes, men's shoes. But can you imagine what it would look like if the government provided shoes? I mean, we'd all be wearing one type of shoe (laughs) for everything or maybe two or three at the most. I mean, there's no way we would have the variety that we have. And that's typically the way the government operates. And and it has to do with these incentives that build up around these institutions like education. Um, he talks about how there's a monopoly. There's a monopoly effect there. They don't have to, they don't have to be responsive to parents. We see all this contention around school board meetings. I mean, these people are caught off guard. They're like, what is going on? They don't even realize what's going on because They've been able to operate so long without having, without having to answer to parents. They're, they're, like, uh, they're like the frog that you just tossed into the boiling water. They're trying to jump out. The whole thing seems so foreign to them. Well, people are finally waking up to the fact that, yeah, these people don't have your kid's interest at heart. And so that's, that's the nature of Thomas Sowell's arguments, the trade off. The trade off is, you know, school is quote unquote free but not really. Uh, But then you get a crappy education and there's all these other incentives that build up around the education system. And it's difficult to change. It's non-responsive, so on and so forth, just like he said.
3: Many blacks today who are still being given totally inadequate education cannot be expected to get very far for that reason. What would be your remedy for that?
1: I would allow their parents to have a choice of where to send them to school, whether that choice is called a voucher scheme, open enrollment, tuition tax credit, any kind of scheme of that sort. that would put that power in the hands of their parents, mainly because that would mean that the schools would have to be responsive to them. As it is now, the school is a monopoly. They need not be responsive. It is hard for me to understand what harm is gonna be done by allowing parents to have a choice as compared to having self-interested bureaucrats
0: have a monopoly. It's hard for me to understand this, too. I I just don't understand why we think that we can turn education over to government bureaucrats and somehow get good results. But, yeah, we do it, and I don't know. I don't know that it's ever going to change, but that's what we do. And uh, until we can maybe get a voucher system or something like that, uh, we're going to get more of the same. Now, one of the things that's hopeful is this whole backlash against uh, CRT and the 1619 Project, stuff like that. Who knows? That may that may end up draining the public school system. We'll see. But
2: so far, there doesn't seem to be a solution. What distinguishes Thomas Sowell Scholarship? First, intellectual honesty asking the right questions, gathering the relevant data, and following the facts to their logical conclusion, even if that conclusion turns out to be unpopular. Second, the importance of incentives and the reality of trade-offs in addressing our social problems. Third, the belief that a group's upward mobility derives primarily from its development of human capital. And finally, Seoul has an abiding respect for social processes and existing institutions and the role they play in
0: decision making. So, in this short segment, Jason Riley talks about what, what makes Thomas Sowell's scholarship unique and what, what drives him. What are the underlying principles that drive his understanding of the way the world works? And he mentions four areas, and I think these are very important. So, I'm going to spend just a few minutes on each of them. Uh, the first one he mentions is intellectual honesty. And this is one of the things that I'm struck by today, is just the lack of intellectual honesty. People are just constantly, you feel like you're in the spin room, they're constantly spinning things politically. And, you know, people want to blame Congress, for example, saying, well, nothing, Congress can't ever get anything done. Well, that's because Congress, what it does is it spends all its time spinning things politically either in the Republicans' favor or the Democrats' favor. They're not intellectually honest. They don't care anything about what the truth is or what, what is intellectually honest. They only care about gaining power over the other side. That's it. So this intellectual honesty thing is a huge, uh, a huge point of contention, I think. And I think it's one of the reasons driving people to alternative media like this podcast is they they want to listen to people who are intellectually honest and really trying to understand the va- the various aspects of any particular issue and what what what's driving it and what do we need to do to, to fix it because the president of the United States uh, the the Congress of the United States the, the even the even the judges in the Supreme Court and the federal court system and they're not interested in solving these problems. Not really. Uh, and so I think intellectual honesty is a huge part, and we're lacking that all over um, our, uh, our media institutions, our government institutions. I mean, look at COVID. Look at how much intellectual dishonesty there is around COVID. I'm reading Robert R. F. Kennedy's book, and I mean, it is vast what has happened um, the, the the types of things the government has done to the populace is really unbelievable. You need to go read that book. All right, so the second point he makes, uh, kind of the edifice of Thomas Sowell's scholarship, is incentives and trade-offs. And I've mentioned incentives here a couple times. We've we spent a lot of time talking about the school system and the incentives around it. The incentives are not... They're not there for the parents. There's no built in incentives for the parents. All the incentives flow in the direction of unions, teachers, uh, school boards, government in general. And of course, the trade off is you get crappy education. You know, the actual customer in this case is the student, and the customer's not being served. So, trade offs and incentives are a huge huge uh, factor when you're looking at any kind of um, question of economics. And questions of economics are always about scarcity. There's just not enough of something to go around, so there has to be some discussion about how, how we allocate that. In this case, I'm talking about allocating education, but it could be anything. It doesn't have to be education. The other thing he talks about is upward mobility and human capital. So what is human capital? Human capital is one of these terms, you know, you may not know what that is right offhand. Human capital is the investment you make in human beings, i.e. education. Education is a form of human capital investment. Um, continuing education, scholar, uh, going to college is an investment in human capital. Um, and so the idea of the public school system would be that government would invest in human capital and therefore uh, an overall highly educated society would lead to you know, good outcomes. The problem is a lot of the school system's uh, education uh, process is, is more of a propaganda and indoctrination. It's not truly education. And that's, that gets back to intellectual honesty. We're not honest about how we're teaching our children. And therefore, we, get, we don't get good outcomes. We don't get, we don't get good outcomes in human capital. And we find out that we're not competitive with the rest of the world. And people don't want to build factories here. And they don't want to, they don't want to invest uh, uh, real capital, uh, money, uh, plant and equipment, and things like that here in the US. And then the other, the last part, point four that he brings up is uh, the importance of institutions and social processes. Now, I want to put a little bit more emphasis on social processes. What is that? What are are social processes? Well, social processes are experience over time. Um, what, What outcomes have we gotten out of uh, particular ways of doing things in societies. And there has been a tremendous uh, undermining activity on social processes. Uh, the family is, the, is a huge one. Um, the family is the, the core central unit of all social processes in society. And the government's you know, at every turn, has tried to undermine the family. So, but there are a lot of social processes. There, are, there are uh, social processes involved in the development of law. Um, what what works for societies? And a lot of it is is learned over generations and generations of experience. And so, another way to think about it is experience. What is what has been humanity's experience over time? And a lot of that gets codified in the form of these institutions. That's why they, that's why you lump those together, institutions and social processes. So this is the foundation of the way Thomas Sowell thinks. And if you can train yourself to think this way, you'll start to see uh, the pitfalls in people's arguments, the way they want to go about uh, achieving certain societal goals and things of that nature. So I just wanted to spend a few minutes... And I spent a few more than a few minutes um, detailing each one of those uh, topics.
3: Tom makes a very, very good point that general principles affect everybody, whether they're black, brown, or purple.
0: That's right. You know, these principles are universal. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is. It doesn't even matter what your education is. Um, Principles, underlying principles, apply to everybody equally.
3: The first lesson of economics is scarcity. There is never enough of anything to fully satisfy all those who want it.
0: The first lesson of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. So this just illustrates uh, what I was just talking about. Um, when, you, when you get into politics, you're, you're dealing with intellectual dishonesty. And, um, and that shows up in the form of disregarding the first law of economics, scarcity. <laughs> so I, I think in the remaining part of the program, I'm just going to play a potpourri of uh, of things that Thomas Sowell says and then have some really short comments about them so that we can get some of his ideas here uh, into the recording before I end the program
3: today. I'm very sure that Tom would say that the 75% rate of illegitimacy among blacks is a devastating problem, but it's not a racial problem. It's not a legacy of slavery. The the crime that, uh, I believe Tom would say as well, that the crime we see in many black communities is a devastating problem, but it has nothing to do with racial discrimination. This
0: is a clip from Walter Williams, and uh, he's commenting on uh, basically what Thomas Sowell argues for and believes in. And I just thought it was good because there's so much talk in, in America today about racism, about racist, about race preference and privilege and all these things. And I think he just crystallizes uh, the argument against all that stuff. Um, uh, it's, it's a misdirection. It's a, it's a lack of intellectual honesty. And I think it's clear for anybody who's really looking at it but uh, we, have a, we have a scarcity of intellectual honesty, and that's, uh, that's part of the problem.
1: Very often, people talk as if uh, some group has t- taken control of some industry, and they wonder, how did that happen? And in most cases, they created the industry. The industry didn't exist before they got there. That's how they took control of it.
2: Heinrich's decision to relocate to America is a good example of one of Thomas Sowell's core beliefs. That individuals carry with them their skills, no matter where they go, and can succeed if permitted to do so without cumbersome government regulations.
0: This short story seems a little bit out of the blue, but it has to do with the Steinway Company. Um, Heinrich uh, Steinberg, I think was his original name, uh, was living in Europe somewhere, and worked for a piano company and had all these revolutionary ideas and couldn't get the company he was working for to do any of them. And he worked under an apprenticeship system. And basically, uh, he was frustrated and left the apprenticeship program, moved to America, and started Steinway Company. And basically, the rest of the story you know, but that's what he's talking about. Um, that these barriers, these artificial barriers were existing in Germany that kept him from making the world's greatest piano. And he simply took the information that existed in his own head that he owned and he took it to a place, uh, America, New York, in this case at the time, um, not that way today, but at the time it was this way where he could actually put those ideas into action and create something that the whole world wanted. And um, yeah, it's, it's not that they had some sort of monopoly on pianos, they created that industry from nothing, from just ideas. And that's uh, entrepreneurship, that's uh, human capital. These are the things that uh, uh, Thomas Sowell believes in.
1: The average black student at MIT is in the bottom 10% of M- MIT students in math. But he is in the top 90% of all American students in math. Something like one-fourth of all the black students going to MIT do not graduate. You're talking about a pool of people whom you are artificially turning into failures by mismatching them with the school.
0: This particular story has to do with affirmative action. And, uh, and what he's speaking about is how um, black students, uh, because of their minority status, are brought into schools, elite schools like MIT, and because they really don't have the level of scholarship that some of the students they compete with actually do, that a lot of them end up washing out. And so, um, it's it's what he calls uh, you know school mismatch or college mismatch, and uh, it's all done for honorable reasons, right? I mean, people want to see uh, these institutions want to see black people succeed, but inadvertently they turn some of these people into failures. I mean, uh, I'm sure some of these people go on and do great work, uh, transfer to another school, and graduate. Um, but it's it's really not fulfilling its its vision in the way that they're carrying that they're trying to carry it out.
1: Most people have not recognized the fact. That, in, that if you go back into the 20s, you find that a married couple families were much more prevalent among blacks then than today. As late as 1930, blacks had a lower unemployment rates than whites. So all these things that we complain about and attribute to the era of slavery, those things should have been worse in the past than in the present. But in fact, they're worse in the present than in the past. And I think if you want to look for a turning point, it would be since the 1960s.
0: And what happened in the
1: 1960s? You began to have not only the welfare state, you began to have the mindset that goes with the welfare state so that there was no stigma any longer attached, for example, to being on relief or welfare.
0: This is just another great example of not really understanding the trade-offs, not fully analyzing the problem. And I'm going to play a clip here in a second about how Thomas Sowell would get very frustrated with these people with grand visions. And these political solutions are always these grand visions, right? Things that the guys say at the State of the Union address. And we can eradicate poverty in our lifetimes. And we can solve the AIDS crisis in Africa. And we can do this. And we can do that. And, and, uh, but the problem is a lot of these policies, they get ahead of steam. Budgets are passed. You know, entire government edifices are built around uh, implementing those policies. And then 20 years later, we figure out, oh, man, that didn't quite work out the way we thought. But now we can't even get rid of it. So it's just it's just not a good way to go.
3: And Tom often loses patience at people with sweeping visions. Here's how we can improve society. Here is a solution to a problem. And Tom points out in his political writings, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs
0: anytime there's an economist on TV, I'm listening because economists, the, the, one of the big jokes is on one hand you have this and on the other hand you have that. And of course what they're talking about there is trade-offs. But if you listen to people like Paul Krugman or what we call you know political economists, they always talk in terms of certainty. Like this is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do. And um, Thomas Sowell, Points out there is no right and wrong. There's only trade-offs, and that's right. That's what we have to remember about economics. Uh, a great example is uh, I don't know, forty-five thousand people a year die in car crashes. Well, you could eliminate car crashes completely. All you have to do is set the speed limit at five miles an hour. No more car crashes. No more fatalities. Of course, you know we wouldn't get anywhere. Productivity would crash and you know that's just not a workable solution so the tr- the trade off is there that we <clears throat> we live with a, a, some risk of dying in car crashes but then we have speed limits that allow us to get to places we want to go and do things in a timely manner and so on and so forth so that's what trade offs are all about
1: this whole notion that this is, the black family has always been disintegrating, that is nonsense. That his studies go up to 1925, the great bulk of black families were intact, two-parent families up through 1925, and going all the way back through the era of slavery. So it is now only within our own time that we suddenly see this inevitable tragedy, which the welfare system says it's going to rush into solve.
0: So he said this in a couple of different ways already, but, um, you know, look, I think, I think we just need to be very, very skeptical of solutions that come out of government. Uh, Whether they're in the name of race or they're in the name of economic prosperity or whatever the reason. Um, I think Milton Friedman is the one that said, look, there are no free lunches. And what he's talking about is trade-offs. There are no there are no free lunches. You can't get A without sacrificing B. That's just the way economics is.
1: Racists may prefer one race to another, but they prefer themselves to everybody else.
0: That's right, and don't we don't we instinctively know that? Don't we know that we do things for our own reasons, not for other people's reasons? It's like when the COVID uh, shots were being pushed, and they said you need to take the shot so you can protect your neighbors, you can protect your coworkers. Well, this is ridiculous. That's not what a that's not what a vaccine does. A vaccine doesn't um, protect your. That's not why you take a vaccine. You don't take a vaccine to protect your neighbors or your coworkers. You take it to protect yourself. So I think that's his point in talking about racists. Racists may very well prefer one race over another, but what they prefer more than anything is themselves over everybody else. <laughs> it's obvious when you say it like that, isn't it? That's just what makes Thomas soul great. He has a way of saying things that make it, that reveal it as obvious.
1: I was now beginning to understand things I hadn't understood before.
0: Yeah, when you listen to Thomas Sowell, you begin to understand things that you didn't understand before. That's right. I love that.
1: I've been able to find a single country in the world where the policies that are being advocated for blacks in the United States have lifted any people out of poverty. I've seen many examples around the world of people who began in poverty and ended in affluence. Not one of them has followed any pattern at all like what is being advocated for Blacks in the United States. Uh, many groups have remained in poverty for a very long time trying to follow those patterns.
0: Yeah, in summary, what he's saying is what we're doing in America for Blacks is not helping Blacks. It's not helping poor people in general. It's not helping anybody. We need to stop doing it immediately. Uh, but politically, it's difficult, right? Because for what we what we talked about earlier, once you once you do something, you implement something politically, it's very, very difficult to get rid of because of all the, the interests that build up around it and solidify it, make it permanent, basically.
1: I grew up in an era when people, particularly blacks, were a lot poorer than today, faced a lot more discrimination than today, and in which the teenage pregnancy rate was a lot lower than today. I don't believe there is a predestined amount of teenage pregnancy, a predestined amount of husband desertion. Gutman has done a study of the black family, showing that this whole notion that this is, the black family has always been disintegrating, that is nonsense.
0: Yeah, it, you know, it almost just takes a black person, kind of like Candace Owens today, you know, she's, she's calling out some of these things. But you almost have to be black to mention these things because it ends up being like a third rail, like you just, you can't be white or brown or some other color and talk about these things. But, you know, no matter who's talking about them, they're real things and they're real problems that need to be addressed. And I think if all we do is let, say, black people talk about them that are race baiters, like Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton or these types of people, then you just get more of the same. You don't ever get any kind of solutions. So listen, that's that's Thomas Sowell. And uh I encourage you to go out and listen to Thomas Sowell. Um there's a lot of good stuff out there um back in the day when he was on um Free to Choose, which was um a program that Milton Friedman and his wife, I can't remember his wife's name, um, they produced and really interesting shows that Milton Friedman would show, you know, free market enterprise under all kinds of different scenarios. And I think Thomas Sowell was on a number of those programs. And so you can go watch those are very interesting. I think a lot of people would like it. Part of the reason some people don't like economics is because they haven't been able to find these really interesting people like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams. And, you know, there's, there's, really good economists out there, but I think the only ones people really know are the Paul Krugman's of the world, uh, or the Jared Bernstein, you know, who works for the Biden administration. And these people are boring and they're political hacks. They, they don't really have anything interesting to say. They're not really studying anything except government policy. And we've already established that there's no intellectual honesty around that. And, um, because of that, you don't really get the full picture, and I think people get a sense that they're being lied to when they when they listen to people like that. So, but I think if you go listen to a Thomas Sowell or Walter Williams or um, there's a whole bunch of great economists out there. Peter Schiff is Peter Schiff is really good. Um, there's there's a ton of good ones out there. They're just they're just not on TV because they're not playing the political game and everything on TV is pretty much political. So we've come to the end of the show and I want to thank you for coming in and listening today. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this talk on Thomas Sowell. I know I've enjoyed uh, commenting on it and his, his contributions to economics and really just to humanity in general. I think if you go um, on YouTube and you investigate Thomas Sowell, you'll find that he is a beloved Economist out there, and he's a very good economist, well respected, and there's a there are a lot of good ones out there. I know a lot of people don't like economics because they think of people like Paul Krugman or uh, Jared Bernstein or some of these political guys, and nobody nobody likes that, right? So, um, I've got a little uh, soundbite here that I want to end the show with, but I just want to say, you know, if you if you enjoy the show, uh, go out and share it. You know, let's uh, let's build up a big group of like-minded people. Maybe we, uh, at some point, if we get large enough, we put a MeWe group together or something and share ideas online. Uh, some some sort of platform that's not going to ban us. But go out and share, uh, go out and share the show, and, and uh, let's let's build a big group together. I think it'll be a lot of fun, and God knows we all need more fun, right? Alright, so here's that sound bite coming up, and until next time, who gets to decide?
1: Uh, it doesn't matter how smart you are unless you stop and think.